Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the incredible biologist Suzanne Samard, author of the New York Times bestselling Finding the Mother Tree, which is about the intensely connected and essential network of nature's wood wide web. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. As scientists, we often look at one thing and we say, oh, that's the one thing. It's competing for light. And then, and that's true. That's what people did. You know, the science, the the experiments were simple, looking at one resource and not at the whole ecosystem. And so you, you miss all these other ways that they're interacting. And if you, if we could look at the whole thing all at once, we would make completely different decisions about how to manage that ecosystem. But because people were so focused that birch is competing for light, and not just birch, but aspen and all kinds of like red alder, all kinds of other species. And that led to the the wholesale herbiciding of these native plant communities to get rid of these so-called competitors. And if we just known ahead that they were also collaborating at the same time, I think we would any thinking person would never have gone in and poisoned these other plants because they create balance in the ecosystem. So says Suzanne Samard, professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia, pioneering researcher into plant communication and intelligence, and best-selling author of Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Born and raised in logging country, Suzanne and her holistic views of forest ecosystems were not welcome into the male-dominated forestry industry. Pushed into academia, she has dedicated her career to investigating the complex relationships between trees. She is best known for her work on the communal lives of trees, exploring the ways in which trees use below-ground fungal networks to communicate, compete, and cooperate, exhibiting sophisticated social traits characteristic of a civil society not too different from our own. At the center of it all, she tells us, are the mother trees, immense, highly connected beings that play a vital role in intertwining and sustaining those around them. Our conversation dives into these enthralling, mysterious relationships and the practical application of Professor Samard's work on forest resiliency and adaptability, including how to manage and heal forests from human impact. We must value our ecosystems for more than what we exploit them for, she tells us. And by restoring biodiversity and respecting nature's brilliance, we can reconnect to the intelligence of the natural world and hopefully uncover a better way forward in the process.
I loved your book. It was so, so beautiful. I'm from Montana. And okay. so we're neighbors. We're neighbors. We're neighbors. And that's why you've got the check shirt yes. on. Yes. Yeah. I wanted you to feel <laughs> extra at home. Okay. My, my, everyone needs a like a, a fiddle leaf fig, right? Like that's the house plant du jour. So I have a lot okay. of those in my house. Just yeah. trying to make you feel a comfortable. Fig. <laughs> yeah. okay. I loved reading first. I like one, the book, obviously we'll get into mother trees, but it felt like such a love letter to your brother, Kelly. And I loved yeah. reading about him and Thank you. His rodeo days. Yeah, the you know the the ranching and cattle and horse part of my family is such a huge thing. But it's sort of like once Kelly passed away, I feel like I've kind of lost my connection to that. And although my uncle Wayne is still very much he raises cattle and <laughs> and he's a real character still. But yeah, it's it's a part of life that you know that most people don't see that segment of our culture that is so it's almost like a historical thing you know that culture and it, it yeah it it's cool it's really neat I, I love it because it's about you know a lot of it's about survival yeah <laughs> you know and surviving on the land and being with the land in such a unique and careful way yeah so I do I miss that you. I do feel you know when I and we're going to talk about trees I promise but when I first started going to this ranch that I go to in the summer I grew up with horses in the woods and mm -hmm. spent my childhood, you know, with my brother, my dad in the woods and the forest mm -hmm. and, you know, finding morels or huckleberries or probably not entirely. Just, I think you were a little bit more remote than we were. But when I went back to this ranch and started writing again, and I actually grew up writing English, but this ranch is Western. And I was like, this is so and my husband, who's not at all from, you know, he was like, this is strange to me. Like, I don't know what's yeah. happening. And the owner of the ranch was like, well, this is your culture. And I was like, I'd never really thought about it like that. But it felt mm -hmm. very much, I'm sure for you too, like coming home where I'm like, I mm -hmm. understand horse people. And like, I understand rodeo culture and barrel racing queens. <laughs> that was my yeah. fantasy, my childhood fantasy. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's neat that you're, that you're, you're comfortable on a horse. It is really interesting. And like, and those, that that culture, there is so much respect and reverence for the land. Although it's interesting, you know, you obviously grew up in a logging family, like really in it. And reading the first third of your book, which is really about this strain, I don't even know how you would define it, but like the Venn diagram between people who you know, know better or have some, must have some intuitive understanding of the forest and like some reverence, right? But their unwillingness to accept mm -hmm. the reality of the practices, like that had to have been such a like cognitive dissonance. Well, and still today, you know, it's the same cognitive dissonance over all kinds of things that we have going on. It's like, how could you not see this, you know, that caring for the land, our lives depend on it. And yet, you know, our economic system is, is about exploiting, you know, and, pushing these ecosystems to collapse. And yet, you know, as individual people, we care about these, about the land and the, the plants and the water and the animals. But then we're driven by this economic thing that doesn't care about it. And so, yeah, it is a cognitive dissonance, but how do we've got to bring that Venn diagram so that it's whole, right? Yeah. Because until we do, 
yet we're going to still continue that we'll we'll still continue to have these collapsing systems around us. Yeah. No, I thought at the end, I mean, you write about, you talk about sort of that first, you know, when you were working for writing prescriptions for that logging company, and you first encounter those yellowing saplings, and you're like, what's happening, right? Or seedlings. Mm -hmm. And then you write, I'd been taught in the university to take apart the ecosystem, to reduce Mm -hmm. it into its parts, to study the trees and plants and soils in isolation so that I could look at the forest objectively. This dissection, this control and categorization and cauterization, we're supposed to bring clarity, credibility, and validation to any findings. And then that's how you were able to publish your your point. And then, but when you get into the complexity, it's like, well, there's no control in this study. Like what you're observing <laughs> is irrelevant. But it is that the fact that we've been taught to specialize the body, dissociate, you know, mm-hmm. it's all the same, right? It's the same. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. In medicine or forestry or fisheries or yeah, reductionism that, that Western science is based on this reductionism. And, you know, it's only in the last couple of decades that has emerged this more holistic science called, called complexity science, which is, whole, you know, whole ecosystem, whole body, whole biosphere kind of way of seeing the world, but it takes a whole different tool set to, to do that. And, and, and we also have to, you know, retrain our minds to not, you know, to look at the whole thing instead. And, and also, I think the other difficult part is that emerging from this reductionist science is how we also treat our ecosystems or treat our bodies, right? Like you go in and I go, oh, I've got a pain in my stomach. Oh, I'm going to give you like an antacid. But that pain could be because your whole food system is out of whack. You're eating you know, foods that are you're allergic to, but we sort of reduce it down to that one organ. And it's the same in forest. We reduce it down to those little trees that that's all we care about are those little trees because we're going to grow them back to become big trees that we're going to log again. That's like the whole objective. And it's like, man, we've missed the point that this little seedling is dependent, interdependent with its whole ecosystem. Or in, in our sense, that little, you know, your gallbladder is interdependent with your entire body. Yeah. So we've kind of really, you know, dug ourselves into this. And now we're seeing it expressed in, you know, in on our losses, right? Our losses of, of climate stability <laughs> and all that goes along with that. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week, too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. 
This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P-T-T. You're one of the very early people. I mean, this is the irony, right? That essentially indigenous peoples and cultures all along have been like, have understood this deeply and profoundly and been expressing it. And yet, as a Western scientist, you were an early, a very early, too early, right? To the point that you you fled into fled the Forest Service a- into academia, or maybe you, maybe that. I mean, I'd like to be a professor. So, <laughs> I, I would say I was pushed out into it. You know, yeah. I I always saw my myself as a person that would work with the land, work on the land. I really wanted to just, you know, work in the forest, be a forester, but forestry would not accept me at that point. Right? I was, I was a young girl it was the late or the late 70s early 80s and the industry was it was completely male dominated and so was the what so was the science around it and and it was not ready for girls to come in and make waves or or even just to do a job and so i couldn't make my way in and so then you know and then when i went to the forest service so i went i i kind of got pushed out of forest industry into the government, you know, forest government governance, and and I, I was able to do research, but even then they were not ready to move from this reductionism to more holistic way of seeing forests. And so I got pushed out of there. And then I was lucky to land into a, an academic job, which I'd never envisioned myself doing, because I'm a practitioner, right? I'm an applied, live on the land, work with the land kind of person. And here I spent a large part of my career doing doing research, which I loved, but, but it wasn't my calling, right? It was, it was something that I, I, I got to because the other places wouldn't keep me. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. But ultimately probably to the benefit is benefit of the forest, but it's interesting. I mean, clearly there's a, there was a huge gender component to this and this boys club that you were part of how much, you know, it was so staggering sort of after your, after that, massive breakthrough in nature, which is sort of like the ultimate, right? I mean, there is no more prestigious place for this type of research. But after that first early study, and then your rejection, right? Like the the disavowal of your work. How much do you think was gender versus politics and money? Because clearly, like, it's wild to me that despite what you were showing, and you've only been proved out more and more in these intervening decades, that there was so much resistance. How much would you put on guilt versus gender versus just that, how hard it is for people to acknowledge that they've been wrong? 
Yeah, I think it's all mixed in there together. You know, if I try to look back and dissect it, I mean, certainly, you know, there were gender issues about, you know, anything that women were doing in forestry then. And we, what we were trying to do is just fit in so we could get these jobs. And then, you know, and then you start, you know, because we're thinking, feeling and understanding human beings, of course, we're going to start looking at, well, how are you doing this? Why are you taking these old, old forests and reducing them to rows of pine trees? You know, of course, you know, any thinking person would say, what are we doing here? And women tended to look, you know, we ended up in research because we weren't, you know, welcomed into the practical side, which was more about the engineering and road building and laying out blocks to cut timber down. It was very much a machismo kind of world. So we ended up in these little places like research and civil culture where we were more accepted. And of course, that's where, you know, you challenge the status quo, because when you do research, you go, oh, you know, as soon as you start looking at that system, anybody will see that there's things wrong with it. And so, you know, we ended up, you know, just just because that's the way things worked out, looking and critiquing the system. And, and of course, from our own female perspective, so I'm counting myself in, you know, this small group of female scientists, forest scientists who started doing this research and critiquing. And of course, when you, you know, as a scientist, you find these, these places that can be improved. And when you start vocalizing it in that male world, it's easy for, you know, a group of males who are have their cultural support behind them to say, oh, no, we can't accept this. And so, of course, there was gender issues, just as I described there. And then, of course, there was also the individual egos at play as well. So, for example, you know, there's, you know, certain people, males that were, you know, had risen up through forest policy and practice through at, you know, in government, who created policies that that reinforce this sort of mechanical way of industrial forestry, and they become wedded to their policies. It becomes their thing. And so I re- I hit that as well. It's like, we're not going to change this for you. And then, you know, so there was that individual ego involved. But then there is also, you know, the whole economic machine at play. So, you know, thinking, you know, as you develop an industry, so in this case, industrial forestry, you know, it's about cutting down trees. It's about preparing, putting machines in and preparing sites for planting. It's about growing seedlings in nurseries and planting them. It's about spraying the land to get rid of the native plants. You know, it's about, you know, spraying them again and then thinning and then going in and doing that harvest again. Imagine the industrial machine that's been set up to service that idea. And so there's a lot of resistance to change that. There's a lot of money at play. And and I think that I didn't, as a just as a researcher going, oh, you know, there's networks in here and it's a whole ecosystem. And they're going, you know, it's you're quickly shut down, right? Yeah. Because of the big money. And I was, you know, I was in my 30s. I was a young mom. I I didn't really, I didn't expect it, I guess. I was naive in a way about how powerful that lobby and that industry and, you know, how it had built up and how much money was really at play. Yeah. And then from the academic side, there was also the, you know, the theoretical challenge because, you know, (laughs) the idea that, you know, that speciation and ecology or ecosystems were founded on or or structured by competition you know, that was a, a very strong prevailing theory and still is today. And so I was challenging that and saying, hey, actually, these plants are cooperating as well. You know, yeah, there's competition, but they're actually cooperating in a very deep sense. 
And so that, that, you know, the academic world wasn't ready for that either, especially in the world of applied ecology. So I got it from all angles, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's amazing, the perseverance and the way, I mean, it seems like, I don't know if you had a premonition or an idea of what you would, the the sort of the ultimate reality of your work, and I'm curious to know where it's going, but this idea of mother trees and this whole nuclear or sort of this way that they are intelligent and are passing nutrients through is it mycorrhizal am I saying that right that there this deep web of interconnectedness underneath the ground which I think is now more mainstream right and more part of our consciousness and but you started you know it's interesting to watch the evolution of the experiments as you work towards this and like the steps, the plotting steps need to be taken, right? Because that first nature thing was simply establishing that they're, was it that they were connected, the birch and furs are are feeding and sharing nitrogen and sharing resources and not competing? Or they yeah. are competing, but they're collaborating? At the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, they were sharing carbon and I think nitrogen as well that we learn much later. Yeah. So as, as, Birch was shading Douglas fir. It's true that that's it's competing for light, really, because it's shading, right? It's it's capturing light that fir won't otherwise get because it's in the understory. But at the very same time, the beauty of this is that Birch was providing Douglas fir with carbon through the below ground network. And and I think, you know, I look at that now, and it's really it this the community of trees was seeking balance, right? Because the community, you know, why would Birch want to kill its neighbor when actually when you look more deeply at all the other interactions that birch needs its neighbor Douglas fir in order to maintain balance in the soil against pathogens and other acidifying microbes. And, and so it's evolved, that community evolved and adapted and uh, to work together like that. And, and as, as scientists, we often look at one thing and we say, oh, that's the one thing it's competing for light. And then, and that's true. That's what people did. You know, the science, the the experiments were simple looking at one resource and not at the whole ecosystem. And so you, you miss all these other ways that they're interacting. And if you, if we could look at the whole thing all at once, we would make completely different decisions about how to manage that ecosystem. But because people were so focused that birch is competing for light and not just birch, but aspen and all kinds of like red alder, all kinds of other species. And that led to the the wholesale herbiciding of these native plant communities to get rid of these so-called competitors and if we'd just known ahead that they were also collaborating at the same time, I think we wouldn't, any thinking person would never have gone in and poisoned these other plants because yeah. they create balance in the ecosystem. Well, right. And it seemed, if I'm understanding this correctly, that and, and per, per, people weren't taking a long enough view, right? So like the scorched earth approach, sometimes it would appear that the fur, which was what they wanted to cultivate and had the most value, was mm-hmm. out significantly outgrowing, right? But then they start to fail. They become diseased, sunburnt, and that over the span of time, like dramatic difference, right? In the Mm -hmm. quality of the forest. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that even so, even as you were Mm -hmm. walking them through that one experiment where you you were like, let's just actually go there and I'm not going to stand in front of you with a slide projector. And like the just firm disavowal (laughs) of what was in front of them. It's staggering. You know, I think that they needed more evidence, right? They they needed, you know, here 
really that that nature paper was a breakthrough discovery. And, and in science, you know, you science kind of works along where you you get these breakthroughs, but then you know the the actual scientific community takes a lot more to be convinced that it's a real breakthrough. And so they, you know, you've got there can be years and if decades to kind of chunk along catching up to that breakthrough. And then when you get the, you know, confirming or verifying studies that say actually this is true, then the scientists come along and start, you know, doing that more extension, they call more extension kind of science. And so I was at that moment, you know, there was this breakthrough. People were going, oh, we need more evidence. Of course, all those other social factors at place, like at play, like that we just talked about, but yeah. And so it's taken now. So I did that study 30 years ago and here we are in 2022 and you and I are talking about this as though, you know, of course this, this makes sense that, that these networks exist and it's very, people know about it. They're teaching it in high schools, but holy cow to get to this point, what a road, what a ride. (laughs) Yeah. And then this, I mean, it's the, the last third of the book is so beautiful and, the way, and I didn't know if I was understanding this correctly, but essentially also within these almost, is it a neural path? Like how do you, will you talk us through exactly what's happening with the mother tree and then the chaos that erupts when those bonds are broken? Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm just going to take you through the development of a, of a forest. So, so in a lot of forests, in old growth forests, in dry forests in the Western U.S. and Canada, and, you know, a lot of forests are like this, where you have elders, you have younger trees, and you have seedlings. And so the elder trees, the, the grandfathers and the grandmothers, or however you want to describe them, these old trees, they shed seeds, the seeds fall to the forest floor, it they germinate. And those new germinants are the next generation. And so those new germinants are, you know, establishing in, in little gaps in the forest, maybe an old tree fell over, or maybe there was a small fire that went through, or for some reason, there's a gap that seedling establishes, it germinates, it sends a little root down into the soil. And that root within a few weeks becomes colonized by the great network that is supported by these old trees. And that network is the fungal network. It's the the mycorrhizal fungi that and that there are thousands of species. It's a whole kaleidoscope of species down there doing their little jobs, you know, filling niches at getting nutrients and water for those big trees. And it's think you can think of it like a huge placenta, if you will. And these little seedlings tap into that, that has this enormous uptake capacity for all these resources. So they're really, you know, falling into an established nurturing grounding place. And then they get, you know, they start feeding from that network they get their nutrients and water even though they they're producing their little seeds or seed or sorry their little needle needles and leaves and then they have enough to get going because they're being supported and subsidized by that network and these older trees and then they start to grow up and become saplings you know and, and then eventually they become old trees themselves and then they're the ones that are producing the seeds and the seeds fall to the ground and they establish within that network so it's really this you know this old forest itself regenerating in this way and the fungal network is very much, you know, the, the starting ground of those, for those germinants, you know, and forests vary across landscapes to, you know, there, there's different kinds of forests. And so the, the, the distinct dynamics of a forest vary according to that landscape, but that's the basic idea of the cycle of a forest. It's old to young and the nurturing capability of the old to bring these young ones along. And there's a preference, right? They're, they don't, disavow their 
I guess, cousins or the other trees, seedlings and, and saplings, they help them too, but they have a preference for their own children. Yeah. So we, of course, when we started, you know, thinking about the scientific process, we started out just looking at, you know, oh, these trees are, are redistributing resources back and forth between them. And then the next was, oh, these old trees are distributing resources to young ones in the understory. And, and oh, actually, you know, thinking through these, the, the succession of our experiments, it was, a, it was really an evolution of discovery as we went from one question to the next. But we started out thinking more generally, where are these, where are these old trees redistributing their resources? Oh, you know, to all kinds of species. And then, oh, and also to their own species. And then that, the next question was, oh, I wonder if they, they send more to their own offspring, to their kin. And every time we asked those questions, we went, oh, you know, there is a preference. There is more going to the kin. So it was all like a big surprise. And one thing led to the next. And yeah, so we did come to the point where, yes, these old trees really do send resources to even other species and, and strangers and, you know, understory plants, but they preferentially uh, provide carbon and nitrogen and, and water to their own kin. And that gives those kin a head start. It's like alloparenting. I mean, it's, it's like the same concept. And I want to get into this idea of equality because I thought it was so beautiful. But then this feels like I want to, do you mind if I read to you from your own book? Yeah, for, for sure. Please go for it. <laughs> You're like, I wrote it a long time ago. So, so you write, maybe society should keep old mother trees around instead of cutting most of them down so they can naturally shed their seed and nurture their own seedlings. Maybe clear cutting the old, even if they're not well, wasn't such a good idea. The dying still have much to give. We already knew the elders were habitat for old growth dependent birds and mammals and fungi, that old trees stored far more carbon than young ones. They protected the prodigious amounts hidden in the soil, and they were the sources of fresh water and clean air. Those old souls have been through great changes, and this affected their genes. Through the changes, they'd gathered crucial wisdom, and they offered this up to their offspring, providing protection, laps into which the new generations got started and foundation from which to grow. It gives me chills, but that idea of crucial wisdom mm -hmm. and the way that they're, the discovery that they are not only nurturing, but they are warning, preparing mm -hmm. is so stunning. Can you, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about that intelligence? Yeah. And as you, you know, as you read that passage, I'm just, I, I, it's been a while since I wrote that, but it is a beautiful passage. It takes yeah. so much science and, and puts it into this really understandable nugget of, of beautiful writing. <laughs> Sorry. I did. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it's really nice. I, I haven't read it. I, ha I hadn't listened or read that for a long time, but <laughs> just, I'm just thinking about how many experiments, how many struggles went into, into, being able to produce that paragraph. But let me explain a little bit more. You know, it was so many graduate students and studies that we took us to understand that not only were carbon and water and nitrogen moving between these plants, these, these trees, but also information. And, and I have to say that, I, you know, I, I'm at the point in my career, I'm in my early 60s, where I'm not going to be the one uncovering what that information is. I just know that it exists because of the kinds of experiments I did. So my graduate students would do things like injure an old tree, you know, pluck off the, the needles and then label the tree with carbon 13, for example, and then watch that carbon move 
into the neighboring seedlings that were of their own kin and not, you know, their, their, their offspring and strangers and finding that, you know, a, a, gra a greater amount of carbon went straight into those kin seedlings and not just carbon, but, but it, it actually affected their defense system. So we could look at the defense enzymes that were produced in those little seedlings connected to the mother tree that's just been injured. And we could see their defense enzyme profile get basically motivated to, to produce more enzymes. And so, you know, really what those seedlings were doing is they're eavesdropping on their parents and saying, hey, you know, or, or the parent is sending a signal Hey, there's there's danger here, and you need to protect yourself. And so they did. Whereas the the stranger seedlings didn't get those messages. And so so there's all kinds of things going on in that little experiment I just described to you. One, there's the recognition that this this mother tree or this this older tree has of the of the of their offspring. That's a recognition signal. That's information. Second, there's resources going between them, more resources, carbon, nitrogen, and so on. That's information. And the third bit of information here is, hey, there's a there's a herbivore that's affecting the, the mother tree and the, the seedling is getting that message to upgrade its own defense arsenal. So that just describing there, you, there's a lot of conversation going on there. There's a lot of information moving back and forth between these two trees. And that was many, many experiments to figure that out. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly, they use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, Treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. And you talk a bit about the forest's ability to heal itself, the bounds of when it 
can't when we're so destructive that it's just who knows when Mm -hmm. new life can take form. But when we think about, you know, you talk about in the context of climate change, beetles, a lot of these threats, you know, the way that we've completely disturbed these natural systems, does it make you hopeful that if left to its own devices, if we could possibly do that, which I understand with our consumption, we can't right now. Are you hopeful? Yes, I am hopeful. And and the reason I'm hopeful is because I understand these ecosystems, right? Because I've had the privilege of growing up in these forests, working in these forests and studying them. I mean, what a gift I've been given. But, you know, in that whole life, I've, you know, I've seen forests recover. And I understand how they recover. I understand that, you know, these networks that are below ground, which are not just the fungi, but the the bacteria and the all the whole soil food web is a connecting system that is integrated and interdependent. I know that it's it's evolved to help those ecosystems recover and regenerate. And so it really is only us, you know, really giving the, the power of that system that's already in place giving it the power, the chance to recover. You know, if we keep hammering it, if we keep, you know, doing these cumulative destructive things like, you know, suppressing natural fire regimes, clear cutting, um, spraying herbicides, you know, planting the wrong species and then and then going and cutting it again at a short rotation. If we keep doing that, then the system, you know, it does, it, it suffers. But if we can slow down and let it heal in its own, with its own devices, and even with our our help, right? We can help those ecosystems recover. And that is really what, you know, our Aboriginal people, you know, that's how they lived with the land is they actually were caretakers. They understood how to to actually increase the wealth and the health of those ecosystems by being the caretakers. Well, you know, but Western society has been more like the exploiters. And, and so we, we know then that we can help the systems, we can allow the systems to recover on their own devices. And we can even speed up the process by, by putting in, you know, helping it by reintroducing the right plant species, the right fungal species, the, you know, allowing the, the, the natural biodiversity to flourish instead of always, you know, degrading it through, through our exploitations. So that's what gives me hope. I know it's wired to heal. And do you feel like policymakers and obviously environmentalists, but do you feel sort of in Canada, and obviously you have a tremendous amount of North America's forests, but do you feel like people are starting to align around that idea that this is critical and that climate change like is dependent on our ability to sequester carbon, all of this stuff? I, I think that, you know, there are individuals, of course, and groups that understand this. Of course, the First Nations, the Aboriginal people, it's just in their worldview, in their culture, in their cultural institutions and the stories they say, they, they know this. They're just waiting for us to figure it out and work with them. And so there is a great understanding, I think, out there. But the rest of society is still enmeshed in this consumptive growth economy that isn't, you know, it isn't going to change anytime soon. But what we can do, and what gives me a great deal of hope is that even at the highest levels of world finance, like the, the International Monetary Fund, there, and even in the Intergovernmental Panel, climate change has recognized that that you know, restoring the biodiversity using Aboriginal ways of seeing the world and and working with ecosystems is the key to recovering our ecosystems, and and one of the economic drivers that can make this happen is to start valuing our ecosystems for more than just what we exploit them for, which is timber, 
and you know paper and toilet paper and you know a lot of a lot of stuff we don't need to be honest right we overconsume these forests just because we can and it's been like an endless resource we need to pull back stop consuming so much be much more judicious with what we do use in the forest and and then and then value those ecosystem goods and services that give us life right they give us air to breathe and water to drink and we're moving in that direction by and and by putting a price on carbon and carbon isn't the catch the end all and be all but it's the step in the right direction because everything is made of carbon a healthy thrifty ecosystem is productive and produces more carbon and we're finally putting you know a price on it and countries and municipalities and companies are starting to say we want to go to you know net zero emissions by x amount of time in order for them to do it they've got to pay for it and that means buying carbon credits or buying carbon offsets or investing in carbon projects which are all about increasing the carbon sequestration capacity of a forest or or other ecosystems and the way that forests do that is by being biodiverse and healthy yeah. then that goes back to the very basics of how do we look after these ecosystems you know about knowing the land about knowing which plants belong there about nurturing the salmon populations in the clam beds nurturing the grizzly bears so that the whole food chain of creatures is working together again to create a healthy ecosystem so once we start valuing that on the economy then we can make a big transformational shift in our society we don't have to convince everybody you know that that we have to do this the the economic engine has to get into place and then we'll all go along with it totally and i think it becomes so much less abstract to consumers who want to make good decisions and yeah. obviously are like this idea that we're responsible it's such a much higher level right it's a corporate level but yet they pass on personal yes. responsibility. But once that carbon tax, like once we have an idea of what's a good choice and what's a heavy choice, yeah. I think it becomes much easier for consumers to understand that whole cycle. And they don't want to participate in something that's destructive. Most people don't, you know, yeah. we're unwittingly dragged along and then blamed. Yes, exactly. Or told that it's the individual choice that, you know, don't you've got to recycle more or you've got to ride your bike more and not everybody can do that. And so you feel hopeless, but that's not where, I mean, all that is, is important. We all have to act as individuals, but, you know, and do the best we can, but it really is at this higher level governance where it's going to make a huge difference. And how do we get that? It's about voting. And so then it comes back to the individual. Who do you put in power to make these difficult decisions, right? That that's that's where the individual really does have a lot to say. You know, writing to your congressperson, writing to your senator, voting for the people, holding them to account because it's so easy for them not to follow through on their promises. So you do have you do have power as an individual actor with your political system, and then you need to hold your politicians to account so that they make the right you know policy yeah. decisions that that support dealing with climate change in these ways. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills, so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet, and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit spotpet.com for a free quote today. 
Insurance. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. One thing that's really exciting to me, and it was interesting, you didn't go into this deeply, but you, we were talking about it in the context of treatment for your cancer, and it was at the, the yew tree, but our sort of the, the science now that also enables us or empowers us to the biotech that I know people are scared of, right? But this idea that you can actually isolate this, you could isolate whatever is in this yew tree so that the yew trees aren't stripped, killed, mined for drugs and grow it. You can ferment it. There are ways that we can use nature's intelligence in much more less exploitative ways that I personally think is really exciting. You know, so we're, we're really also obsessed with this idea that like everything that we use or we put on our skin, it needs to come from plants. It needs to come straight from nature. And what we know is like nature can't support our consumption like that. <laughs> but this idea that science can build a bridge of understanding exactly what that molecule is. Mm -hmm. So you're not destroying the whole plant or destroying the tree, I think is, it sounds so sci-fi, but it's honestly the only way that we can meet people's needs without destroying our ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are so intelligent as a species and we've created technologies that we can use to to our advantage and to help heal our, heal our environment. And that's a really excellent example you just provided where, yeah, the yew tree was, you know, actually it was used by Aboriginal people for a long, long time, for millennia here in North America as a medicine. And in fact, the yew tree produces taxol as a defense for itself, right? Mm -hmm. It's a chemical, it's a defense chemical. So when it gets, you know, chewed on by some insect, it produces taxol that makes you know, it makes it unpalatable to whatever is eating it. So it's evolved, you know, it's a medicine that's evolved through through millennia for the yew tree. And then it, the Aboriginal people use the plant because, you know, as a salve and ointment to remedy their, their ailments. And then it was in observation through, you know, medicine of, you know, and Western medicine of the use of these plants that were had high quality for as anti-cancer agencies that, that the U was actually screened by the USDA Department of Agriculture as a potential medicine. This and this happened like a you know a long time ago, decades ago. And then the discovery that it has this, you know, using you know, using chemistry that it has these qualities that was yeah, it was in the like the 1980s that suddenly it became, you know, oh my God, this plant could can cure breast cancer and prostate cancer and all kinds of cancers. And so then, you know, yeah, you're right. Like, so then suddenly it was a bonanza to go and pull this plant out of the forest and use the cambium, which, which is where these high concentrations of taxol are. And then it was modern medicine and chemistry that pulled back and said, oh, we can produce through tissue culture, you know, the cells that actually produce the cambial cells that produce taxol. And then it became something it was no longer exploiting the environment, it was produced in the lab. And that is a breakthrough in medicine, right, mm -hmm. that you could produce it on this scale that that it helps so many people to over, including myself to overcome cancer. And I think, you know, we can also move further and further, like, one of the studies I'm doing with one of my students is, and this is where ecology and medicine can, can really come together in a beautiful way, and pharmaceuticals, 
is that, you know, the yew tree is such a responsive tree in its environment. It grows among cedars and maples that are all connected to it in this ecosystem. It's a beautiful ecosystem when you walk into them. They're they're like these matriarchs, these beautiful cedars that are protecting the yews with the dappled light coming down and the smells coming out of the ground. It's it's gorgeous. But that neighborhood, that community of cedars and maples and other understory plants, the ferns and the and the orchids that are, you know, flowering there in the dappled light, that community actually affects, we think, the production of taxol. If it's a healthy community, then the yew tree thrives and can produce more taxol. And so then it actually could, you know, how we grow taxol could affect the quality of the medicines that we get from it. And I, I, I bet mm. the Aboriginal people looked for certain kinds of ecosystems to, to actually harvest the medicine from the taxol tree. But in, in medicine, what we did is we actually took one sample of cambium and we produced by mass production tissue culture from a basic, a basic almost like a stem cell. And that's been the, the, the origin of all the taxol we produce as far as I know. And so, but we could go back to ecology and say, hey, we could probably get, you know, even better if we manage these ecosystems for for this beautiful communities that will actually enhance the quality and the quantity of taxol produced by that yew tree. So you Mm. see how medicine can work ecology and ecology back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about this idea of equality too, because you look at something like that, right? And and potentially the yew tree saves your life, right? Like there, we have this intense interdependence, codependency, or these complex relationships with nature. And yet the Western Mm -hmm. idea, of course, is that we are lords over matter. And you talk about it as sort of, and I agree, it's like this, there's this idea, we get very confused, I think, between like equal, equal, same, like equity, we don't really understand these concepts of Mm -hmm. like, it's kind, they're not apples, they're apples and oranges, like you can't balance these scales, it's much more complex, and we are part of nature. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Like, how do you bring people into right relationship? Yeah, you're right that, you know, for hundreds of years or a thousand years, you know, originating back in Europe and with religion and our economic system, that this idea of man's dominion over nature has affected a lot of our thinking. It is infused Western thinking that we are the shepherds of of nature, that we are we're the decision makers and we lord over nature and look look at where it's gotten us honestly but the other you know viewpoint by many cultures around the world is no we're not the dominion over nature we're part of nature we're interconnected with nature we're we depend on a healthy ecosystem and so i think about this all the time because that is the crux of the solution to these major global crises that we're facing you know environmental crises it is that world view that is the crux of getting people on board to shift our economy to a well-being economy about a well-being ecosystem instead of one that's being exploited and and it is complex and and of course in ecosystems too and in societies you do have dominant members take, you know, rise up, given power. And then there's others that have other roles that are more service roles. In ecosystems, you do have dominant plants, you know, big old mother trees that are the, you know, occupy the big centers of the crowns. But I think that the difference in our Western thinking is that, you know, the dominant, you know, 
say the dominant CEO, like, you know, the CEO of one of the big corporations that they win by competing, you know, that they win by taking basically. Mm-hmm. But in the, in this other view of dominance is, is there's a responsibility that comes with that dominance, a responsibility to share the resources, to gift, you know, the other members of the community that are doing other jobs with, with the, maybe it's gifting is not the right word, but making sure they have the resources they need to do their jobs. But we kind of lost sight of that, that society is an interconnected, interdependent whole with say, yeah, you do have leaders and so on to thinking that those leaders are, you know, get everything and, and are, you know, when we see these ultra wealthy trillionaires and multi-billionaires rising up and there's just, you know, a few of them and they, they make more and more and more money and they actually start governing the rest of us through, you know, philanthropy and, you know, in very non-democratic ways, we know that we've lost our way with how the ecosystems are really meant to work where dominance, you know, should work as a more of an an equalizer, a more a distributor of wealth instead of the keeper of of wealth. Yeah, no, it's so beautiful. And the, the verb of mothering, right? And this idea, it all comes back to to this fear of our own mortality and under, like lack of understanding about our role in shepherding future generations, making room, right? Like passing on, as you call it, like the most crucial material, like accelerating this wisdom. And and in the West, we don't honor, you know, we're so out of whack in that, right? We're in terms of even honor, accepting what that older people might have something to teach us. And there's this like disavowal that like we're going to die and we need to leave room, leave space, pass on intelligence. It just feels so macro to micro to me, at least. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that we have, you know, we have lost sight of the value of elders, for example, in our society as, as that, you know, as that example, through COVID, we saw that was unveiled, you know, that, you know, a lot of elders died because of COVID while they're old, but also because of the conditions that many are living in. And it was really like an unveiling, oh my goodness, we need to really look at how our elders are are thriving or not. And I think that, you know, that, you know, we're human beings, we're, we're evolved to care for each other, right? We've evolved to be social and to be caring and it's hard to get away from that. And so then I think that we just need to make an adjustment here because what happened, I think, is that what drives the economy kind of took over our, our own collective wisdom about how we actually function. You know, we have the history, we have the ancestry, we have the DNA, we've evolved to, to look after each other and we'll get that back. It's just that we're been, we've been oppressed, that that part of us has been oppressed by our economic system. Just like in a forest where we, you know, we took an old growth forest, we planted it with Douglas fir, and we oppressed all that diversity that's in the soil, in the forest floor, the the seed beds. They're all down there, but they're oppressed by this cover of of making money. You know, we planted trees to make money, and we oppress the rest. And so we just have to uncover it and say it's all there in in our humanity and in our ecosystems. We just got to give it a chance. and and restructure some of our social institutions so we do a better job. I am so grateful for the work of people like Suzanne Samard, such a hero, a trailblazer, clearly a woman who felt connected to an intelligence and a wisdom 
that's eternal. And the way that she has brought that awareness through science, which is really one of the languages that we understand in the West, is so critical. Even though she remarks that she simply stumbled onto some of the indigenous ideals, diversity matters, which I know sounds so obvious to us, particularly now, but at a time when she was watching forests be demolished, sprayed, and sickened, really, she had to find her way to showing people that they were wrong. And as she writes at the end, We have the power to shift course. It's our disconnectedness and lost understanding about the amazing capacities of nature that's driving a lot of our despair. And plants in particular are objects of our abuse. By understanding their sentient qualities, our empathy and love for trees, plants, and forests will naturally deepen and find innovative solutions. Tuning to the intelligence of nature itself is the key. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at LLS dot org slash students. That's LLS dot org slash students.